So Why I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I did a story consultation with author Nathaniel Webb. He bravely trusted me with an incomplete work-in-progress, you know, first draft of a sword and sorcery story he's working on that he felt he was having some concerns about. I read through it a couple of times, then read the story for you, and then discussed it with him. With you listening in, you naughty voyeur. What? Where is this going? Anyway, point is, I really enjoyed doing that, and judging by the reactions online, it seems a lot of people who listened really enjoyed it. So I thought, hey, why not do one more? more of these before returning back to some of these, you know, story outline episodes and interviews and things that I've been doing before to this. Which brings me to our very first returning guest, Matt John. Yes, co-host of the Rogues in the House podcast, a very popular sword and sorcery podcast if you haven't heard of it already. He is also a published author, having sold many short stories and written extensively for the Conan role-playing game. And I know he's got a story coming up in, I don't know the exact issue, but definitely one of the upcoming issues of Tales from the Magician's Skull, essentially the flagship sword and sorcery magazine. But if you want to learn a lot more about Matt and his thoughts and feelings about sword and sorcery, then aside from listening to his podcast, you can go back to episode 21 of this one to hear his interview. This time around, it's going to be all about a specific story of Matt's. The name of this story is The Gift of Galah. As Nathaniel's story was like 1100 words of an incomplete first draft, so this tale is on the opposite end of the progress spectrum. The Gift of Galah comes in at about 3800 words and was, at least as far as Matt was concerned at one point, finished because he submitted it out to somewhere, and alas, it was rejected. Let's be clear here, there is no shame in being rejected when you submit a story out into the universe, because frankly, rejection is part of the game and it's going to be way more of what you experience than acceptance. But understandably, it has left Matt wondering, how could the Gift of Galah perhaps be improved before he sends it out again? And so, like Nathaniel before him, Matt is being very brave by letting me read this story in its entirety to you and then share with you the discussion he and I are going to have about how to accomplish that. Before I read The Gift of Galah, let me just say I do appreciate you might not be in the mood to hear it. You might just want to go straight ahead to the conversation and infer from context, you know, what elements of the story we're talking about and what happened. If that's how you feel, cool. Just skip ahead to 25 minutes and 55 seconds, and you'll be right there for the critique and all that stuff. Otherwise, if you'd like to hear the story first, just keep listening. All right. Without further ado, I bring you The Gift of Galah by Matthew John. Anduin sat in the rain, watching his sword arm twitch. For weeks, the little spasms had wormed their way along his muscles, rising, falling, rippling, a constant reminder of his waning strength. Throughout his days, he'd faced men, beasts, and altogether stranger foes, but nothing brought cold fear like these twitching limbs, especially since he knew what they meant. He rose on shaking legs and steadied himself. Then he drew his sword, testing his grip. Weaker still. Soon he'd be unable to swing it at all. Soon he'd be easy prey for the one haunting his steps. He turned and peered at the leafless trees behind him, but the hooded one remained out of sight. It would wait for him to make camp and watch from the shadows, watch him as he slept, watch him as it had for years. 
A stiff wind moaned, catching his cloak in its misty breath. Like him, the storm pushed north, toward a single black mountain wreathed in clouds. Somewhere in that spire laid a woman as old as the earth itself. Or so he wished. He'd hung his hope on something that probably didn't exist. The Gift of Galah. A fanciful name, perfect for this foolish quest. But what other choice did he have? As the spitting rain became a torrent, he started once more toward the mountain, taking deliberate steps, testing his strength in his feet. Even with the sucking mud, his legs fared better than his arms. If he could but reach the mountain, rest a while, he knew he could find the strength for the final stretch. But as soon as he permitted the optimism, a shadow passed overhead. His eyes shot skyward. Against the black hood of clouds, a winged form soared. Not a bird, but something huge, something unhindered by the storm. He threw his back against the closest tree and froze. Perhaps it hadn't noticed him. He'd heard these forsaken wastes were home to ancient beasts, time-lost predators all but forgotten in the Four Kingdoms. For an instant, he mistook the sudden laughter for a peal of thunder. No, he whispered. Not now. On the trail from which he'd come, the hooded one stood, pointing at him, cackling over the wind, its tattered robe curling in the breeze like the limbs of a spider. Anduin peeled his eyes from the lithe figure and saw the winged beast wheeling overhead, descending, not toward the hooded one, who stood conspicuous and exposed, but toward him. Let's see you master this beast, fool, the hooded one said, gasping with mirth. Glancing back at his tormentor, Anduin caught a flash beneath its hood, several flashes, like cool sapphires. It was the most he'd ever seen of its face. Master this beast, it had chosen its words deliberately, it knew what he sought in that mountain. Running would mean death. The beast bearing down on him preyed on fleeing game. He had to fight, despite his jelly limbs, despite the creature's size and strength. Looking back to the sky, he saw it plummeting toward him, silent. Its huge wings flared back toward the sky. As it neared the ground, its dimensions grew monstrous. Andwin wriggled between two thick branches, pressed his back against the trunk, and gripped his sword in both hands. For decades, this great oak weathered countless storms. Its strong, tangled limbs would help ensure the beast worked for its food. God's willing. A wave of mud erupted from the earth as it landed. Without pause, it slinked toward him, low and lean like a great cat. Rain streamed down in rivulets from its dusky, squamous hide. Baleful chirps escaped. It drew close, and its long neck reared back, stiffening for a strike. As its head shot forward, Anduin vaulted over a thick branch, leaving its face to slam against the trunk. Its jaws caught only a mouthful of branches and... His cloak! He swung blindly as the beast snatched him from the tree, but it was useless. His feeble strikes scraped harmlessly along its scales. The beast dragged him through the mud out into the open. Now, looming over him, it opened its jaws, revealing rows of gleaming yellow teeth. A long tendril of drool dripped down, landing on the flat of his sword. Somehow this shook him from his stupor and he thrust with all he had. But it wasn't enough. The beast's belly was armored like the rest of its hide. Rearing up on its hind legs, it swiped at him with a leathery wing, slapping the wind from his lungs, and sent his sword flying into the brush. Its talons seized his legs, piercing his flesh. He cried out, and, somewhere out of sight, the hooded one answered with sardonic laughter. With a sudden snap of the beast's wings, they were borne aloft. Hanging upside down, he watched the earth recede beneath him. Through the pelting rain, he spotted the figure on the trail below, now but a tiny black smudge. Even at this great height, 
As the beast carried him toward the mountain, he heard the hooded one's laughter. Distant, faint, ceaseless. He awoke, shivering in a pool of dull light. Rain dripped down from a narrow aperture in the cavern roof, spattering his face. He raked his eyes over the dark void, gaining only a vague notion of where he was. Wind whistled through unseen cracks and fissures, skirting past stalactites and stalagmites. He seemed to be alone, but couldn't shake the feeling of being watched, of something breathing. He pushed himself to a sitting position and winced. He ran his hands over his thighs and they came back bloody. These weren't mortal wounds, but they'd be enough to ruin his gait. You're so close now, said the hooded one. A braying peal of laughter followed, reverberating throughout the cavern. There was no sign of the figure. It's real, you know, what you seek. It's so close. Listen, can't you feel it in the stone? Vibrating, pulsing, purring like a whore, imploring you to seize it. And when searched the darkness, his eyes had adjusted enough to make out a deeper passageway. From that blackness came a sparkle of sapphires, the eyes of the hooded one. Listen, it continued. Gala, 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 it calls to you, Andwin. He pressed his hands against the hard stone beneath him and felt a thrumming vibration. Come, Andwin, I'll show you the way. You can finally do what you've lusted for all this time. You've left everything behind, your wife, your children. Make your sacrifice worth it. He had banished all thoughts of his family. Every hour, blurred images tried to worm into his mind's eye. The crow's feet of his wife's smiling face, the gap between his daughter's teeth, moonlit fields of fireflies. But he beat them back. They were gone now. Not until his tormentor was dead could he ever hope to return to them. You took them from me. Andwin hadn't said a word to the hood of one in months, hadn't said anything to anyone. But now, roaring fury crushed all tact. You stole my strength! You stole my life! He slammed his fist against the earth. I've nothing left! His voice sounded faint and lacking conviction. But I will make you pay. Another venomous chuckle. Yes, it hissed. Dig deeper. Find what you seek. I will be waiting. But hurry, the beast returns. He heard the crack of wings and felt the earth heave beneath a hard landing. He got to his feet and limped down the passageway toward the disembodied voice. The hooded one was gone, but Anwin managed to slip silently into the blackness before the beast could find him. He navigated by feel, crawling along the damp, icy stones, winding deeper into the mountain. All the while, he heard the rhythmic breathing of the hooded one, and occasionally caught a glimpse of its shining eyes. The pulse of the mountain grew stronger, louder, each thump like a heartbeat. The earth gained its own voice and sang gala in unison with the hooded one's breaths. They were leading him into the bowels of the giant. For thousands of years, this great spire had vomited gouts of flame, smothering one civilization after the next, punishing those who'd forgotten the fates of their forebearers. Eventually, the belly of the beast emptied itself, leaving only an uncanny pearl at its center, the gift of Gala. According to both Tamarese and Parthrarian legend, whomever seized it could wield the cruel, potent might of a long-dead beast lord. Gala, a savage god made flesh. With this relic, he'd harness a power wholly alien to the weak sinews of men. And Anwin knew well the fragility of flesh. The Hooded One had robbed him of his strength without so much as a touch. The might of beasts was his only hope of making his tormentor suffer. Perhaps he could be whole again. Perhaps with things set right, 
with the menace destroyed, he could return to them. Perhaps. Under his next step, the ground gave out. There was no great rumble, no heaving of the earth. One moment he was on solid ground, the next he was weightless and hurtling into inky blackness. He flailed madly, grasping, desperate to feel anything other than hot air. After a few moments, he caught a soft cord under his armpit. Then his knees were hooked by the same fibers. Were these branches? A net? No, they were cold and sticky. He was grateful to have finished falling, but now struggled to free his limbs from these bonds. In the darkness above him bloomed twelve massive sapphires. The eyes of the hooded one, now immense and possessing their own radiance. They drew closer, burning into him. Surrounding these glowing orbs were wisps of tattered fabric or rope, undulating as if caught in a current. From within this mass, two hairy tendrils emerged, each of them tipped with sharp, gleaming fangs. Anduin now realized what bore down on him, a creature from the maddest nightmare, a massive spider. Under its uncanny gaze, his limbs went boneless. He realized now the wisps of fabric were actually its eight terrible limbs. It set down on the web, and he smelled the fishy odor of its breath, felt the sharp, coarse hairs of its underbelly. The hooded one's voice droned from some unseen place. These limbs have been crawling beneath your flesh for years. My venom has numbed you, making you weak. But you followed the threads all the way here, where I need you to be. And now you're stuck. The creature's huge mass devoured his entire field of view and remained close enough to touch. But his limbs were held fast, and he was helpless but to gaze into its luminous eyes. Would you believe me, fool, if I told you I was never really here? That I'm not here now? Such is the power of my sorcery. You could have cut me down or waved me away whenever you wished. But you wanted to believe. You made me real. And now it's too late. Anduin noticed a new light glowing in the spider's eyes. Blue gave back before a surge of sparkling gold. He tore his eyes away from the creature and glanced toward the pit. He'd been accustomed to the darkness, and now the brilliant light burned his eyes. Well, well, what's this? asked the hooded one. There it is, fool, your only hope. The gift of Galah longs for your caress. Reach out and take it. Fight me. Ensnared as he was, Anduin couldn't even hope to jump to his death. He wrenched at the sticky bonds, kicked out with his wounded legs, all the while averting his gaze from the nightmare creature looming above. He turned enough to face the light and felt a great warmth wash over him. Up from the pit swelled the golden bloom, incandescent and sublime. With it came a drumming, and with each beat came a chant. Galah, galah, galah. Warmth turned to heat, heat turned to pain. Sweat sprang from his flesh as he began to cook. He cried out in agony, and the mountain answered, Galah! His clothes burst into flames. He screamed again, and the mountain answered, Galah! A force pressed against his back as fangs sank deep. With his final words, Anduin called the mountain's name, Galah! And the mountain answered. Drums sounded in the distant trees. The hot reek of jungle filled his nose. He dragged his tongue across his teeth, tasting blood, wanting more. He gazed down at his limbs. They were familiar, yet somehow strange. Arms thick as oaks, covered in dark, silver-fleck fur. Legs short but mighty. He leaped and caught a branch, pulling himself up with awesome strength. By great bounds, he traversed the thick canopy of the jungle, covering miles and moments. 
His heart raced. All the rhythms of the wild played in sync with his movements. Each leap, each landing was hailed by the creatures of the earth. He was on the hunt, and both predator and prey welcomed his coming. This land belonged to him. He ate beside the river, his sharp teeth tearing flesh and snapping bone. From the tree line, lesser creatures watched. Perhaps he'd leave them a scrap. They would be honored to share in his kill, awed by his presence as they were. But to him they were as flies, tiny, insignificant. This great beast he had slain would bring more flies. Buzzing black swarms would lay their eggs in its rotting husk, and this feared reptilian hunter would become nothing but insects. It had challenged him, and it deserved its fate. This land belonged to him. He sat atop the great pyramid they had built for him. Great slabs of green marble had been smoothed into shapes the world had never seen. Far below, his servitors toiled like ants, planting great gardens and orchards. Beyond this emerald sprawl, great walls were raised. The colossal lizards would come and break themselves upon the bricks. They would be crushed by stones and driven through by stakes. They would challenge his rule, and they would learn. This land belonged to him. The day came at last. He'd grown tired, bored, with nothing left to take. He entered the mountain alone and claimed it. The tomb of Galag could be seen from every shore, a great black spire piercing the clouds. For a thousand years, Galah's power swelled in the depths, drawing fire from the bowels of the earth and spewing it to the steps of the gods. It became the bringer of storms. Though in the ages to come, most would forget, the mountain would always remember. This land belonged to him. He opened his eyes and stood. A shell of stone sloughed from his hide, crumbling to the earthen floor. He stretched his limbs and mirth hummed in his breast. Such power! Intoxicating. He recalled what ruin he could wreak with this mighty frame. It was a sensation both familiar and new. The darkness surrounding him was absolute, but the stony silence did not last long. A chime? A pulse? A name? Gala! He was Galah, wasn't he? Then who is this other? From somewhere above, muffled by ages of stone, came a shriek. His hackles rose and his muscles tensed. He knew that sound. A swell of anger washed over him and he leaped from the black pit in which he stood. His hands and feet seized cold stone and his limbs propelled him higher, speed increasing, anger rising at the wails above. After a score of mighty leaps, he pulled himself up to a ledge and into a narrow pass. Through this he charged, wailing a battle cry, seeking the source of the shrieking. He entered a chamber, and there it stood, his timeless foe, limbed by cold light from above. The Saurian, the dragon, a pretty thing but fragile, bearing wings he'd soon snap like twigs. It crouched low and raised its back in warning. This beast had forgotten. The mountain belonged to him. He leaped into its jaws, letting it take a bite. But it was futile. He wrapped his hands around its scaly neck and squeezed, dragging its jaw along the sharp cavern walls, flaying its face of flesh and snapping teeth like icicles. Then he moved onto its wings, wrenching and twisting them from its shoulders. It wailed in agony and shuddered as gouts of blood fountained from its back. In this crimson mist, Galah smiled and laughed and stomped its corpse to paste. His laughter rattled on, a shrill mixture of mirth and madness, but he ceased when he again heard the name. Andwin. His smile sagged into a scowl. Whose voice was this? He tried wailing out a victory song, but the song wasn't his. Andwin. 
Suddenly, the joy of victory was eclipsed by an unshakable sadness and fear. Who is Anduin? Why was this name rattling in his mind? It's you, isn't it, Anduin? asked a disembodied voice. All that fury, all that blustering, you're still in there, twitching and terrified. Galah roared and turned, raking his eyes across the dim chamber, searching for the voice. Wrapping his hands around a stalagmite, he tore it from the floor and hurled it at the wall. Then he repeated the action until there was no more to grab. All the while, laughter reverberated throughout the chamber, mocking him. Galah fell to his knees, hammering the earth until an image appeared in his mind. A shadowed face, a dozen sparkling eyes. The hooded one. Yes, fool, you remember me. Wake up and let us continue our dance. No, I do not know you. Galah spoke in a voice he did not recognize. But I will kill you, all the same. You're Anduin, and you do remember! I am Galah, Scourge of the Serpents, Dweller of the Mountain. He leaped to the ceiling and steadied himself among the stalactites. Then, with fierce strokes, he began plowing the roof of its teeth. Soon he found a cavity where shone twelve sapphire specks. He punched deep into the recess and snatched a hairy tendril, drawing it forth. He gripped it in both hands, planting his feet on the ceiling, pulling. The monstrous spider struggled beneath the weight of Galah, but even its eight terrible limbs were of no use. Both beasts tumbled to the floor. Galah rained blow after blow upon the spider's face, crushing Chitin, bursting its eyes. Though pulverized, the creature seemed unfazed by any pain. It continued to speak. It won't matter, it said. Galah struck again. You won't be rid of me. And again. You still haven't learned. He seized its head in both hands and squeezed, roaring. You are Anduin, the voice said. Its head yielded beneath the pressure and popped, erupting in a mess of skin and fluids. And you are weak! The voice came from nowhere, and everywhere. It was in his mind, and there was nothing he could do to silence it. Galah sagged to the ground. He relaxed his limbs, and they fired up, twitching, convulsing, completely by their own accord. All that strength, said the hooded one, and you're weaker than ever. Galah said nothing in response. And eventually, sleep took him. He awoke in a pool of light, raindrops spattering his face. His limbs resumed their twitching, but the hooded one, if he was there, remained silent. Drawing in a breath, Galah felt a sudden, overwhelming urge to see the sun, the trees, anything but this stifling blackness. He leaped to the ceiling and climbed, eventually emerging onto a ledge cut into the exterior of the mountain. A radiant morning greeted him, a nigh-endless vista of gold and green, ceasing only as it reached the azure horizon of the sea. Only now, as he drank in this vision of elemental harmony, did he realize the anger had left him. A melancholic chill smothered all his scalding rage, and a desire to cleanse his body of blood consumed him. He climbed down the mountain, charged through the forest, and before the night fell, he plunged into the sea. Somewhere in the mind of Galah remained that other name, Anduin, and from that name sprang memories. A woman, willow-thin and smiling, a child, long-haired, blue-eyed, a mischievous grin tugging her lips, a little house beside a silver-shot river, fields of golden wheat swaying in an autumn breeze. The fury of the beast had fled, but the voice of one called Anduin grew louder each day. It was a voice racked with pain. From undiscovered depths, it returned each night, screaming, hammering at some unseen gate, longing for something. 
Anduin led Gala across the sea, up a river, and over the hills to fertile lands. Eventually he arrived at the house he'd seen in his mind. It was night, and the moon shone like a colossal pearl. As he followed the silver river, he caught a glimpse of his reflection, and it stopped him in his tracks. A monstrous figure peered back at him. Yellow eyes, huge, scarred limbs, tangled mats of fur. He peeled his gaze from the river and looked east toward the house where two figures roamed the grass. Though he could make out few details, he knew who they were. The woman and the child. And he knew what they were doing. Catching fireflies. He hadn't heard the voice of the hooded one in weeks, but as his limbs began erupting in twitches, he knew it had arrived. You can't go back to them. Look what you've become. Look again. Gala said nothing. He obeyed the hooded one and was again sickened by what he saw upon the undulating current. I'm done with you, Anduin. For now. I'm leaving and will only return if I ever feel you've forgotten. You belong to me. And now, so too does the great Gala. If you ever forget, I shall return. Though, the hooded one paused and released a faint chuckle. <laughs> I was never really here, was I? The rush of the river seemed to grow louder then. Galah looked back to the house, at the distant figures digging among the grass. There was nothing for him here. He turned back the way he'd come. He'd follow the river to the sea, and take the sea back to the mountain where he'd sleep. Where he'd dream. Where he'd hope to forget. Ah, well, there you go then. Okay, let's go discuss this story with Matt. And here I am once again with Matt John. Hey, Matt. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad. Thanks for joining me. I uh, do rather like that I recorded an interview this morning where my cat dropped a big fat barf beside my feet while I was doing that. And then just as we came to do this, your cats got you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he blasted out two long, hot streaks of fresh food. Um, and right now, you probably can't hear it, but the litter box uh, in the little powder room, uh, something, some creature's <laughs> digging through that right now. So. Amazing. Both ends. Well, let's just hope that's not a visual motif for this story. No, I liked it. Um, but <laughs> It's a metaphor. But uh, yeah, before um, we get into like feedback and, and all that kind of specific stuff, um, could you tell me roughly where the idea started? Like what was sort of the first image or theme or line that just popped into your head and you're like, I got to follow okay. this? Okay. So hold on to your butts and hold on to your hearts for this one because... Uh, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's actually probably the most weirdly personal thing I've written. And I think this is maybe why, um, this story isn't what I need it to be perhaps, or perhaps why it hasn't found a home or any number of things. Anyways, my brother took ill, uh, last year. He, he caught, I don't know if you catch it, but he got ALS and he passed away as my big brother. And so it was a very traumatic thing for me, obviously, and our whole family, etc. Um, mm. I'm not trying to start on this horribly dour note, <laughs> truly. Um, no, no, it's where the story came it, from. Yeah, it's, all, it's true. So and, and like, I've always been a very strong um, with my mental health, I always felt. Anyways, that whole, you know, his whole situation affected me, as you would imagine. And then mm. I started to get like, overwhelming anxiety, like health anxiety, feeling like, oh my God, the same thing is going to happen to me. And what does that mean for this and for that? And I started, my brain decided, hey, Matt, you know what you need to go with that? Some muscle twitches. All right. So because yeah. <laughs> the, the anxiety can cause that, right? I start twitching head to toe. Mm. 
and then you do some Google medical research and realize that, oh my God, I am dying too. Wow. Yeah. Google's like, it's a tumor and you're like, it's not, well, I'll spare you the line. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it does. The algorithm pushes the sort of frightening stories to the top because those are the ones people latch onto and share and whatever. Anyways, it came from that sort of personal tragedy. Um, And then I kind of got into the idea of a character who he didn't have much time left. And then overall, I kind of created what I think is sort of a metaphor for anxiety, which is incredibly strange to me because I'm not really that kind of writer, but it was just, I I usually, I don't know, you've read some of my things. There's a little more levity and, you know, fun. And this one was just darker because I was in a darker mindset and uh, that's where we're at. Well, obviously, I wish it had come from somewhere yeah, else. That's yeah, a real yeah. shame that that was its origin. But I got to say, I found it really compelling. And I kind of assumed, actually, it maybe came out of something to do, because uh, you have done for quite a while bodybuilding. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the different kind of muscle twitching. Yeah. So talking about like losing and gaining strength, I was like, oh, maybe yeah. it's like, you know, one day at the gym, he kind of, his arm, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> so. but, I mean, and, and some of that is part of it, too, because when COVID struck, uh, which coincided pretty much with my brother's illness too. I, you know, I stopped working out just because the gyms were shut down and I my exercising got very sort of sporadic. And then funnily enough, yeah, that, that can cause it too, right? Because your muscles are deteriorating a bit because you're not working them. And then you go work them again and they're like, hey, what's this? Yeah, what, what are you yeah, doing? What are you doing yeah. here? <laughs> yeah, so. I swam laps and so obviously no pool. Yeah, I keep trying to get a home routine going. It's just not mm-hmm. happening. And with a few times I have, like I'll like do my first push up since God knows when and my body does, yeah, like what the hell are you doing yeah. here, man? Like starts vibrating my fucking yeah. forearms or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Like, <"Hey."> <laughs> <laughs> I submit. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I mean, uh, oh it's not something, any of that I really talked about too much publicly, but it's also something I'm at a point with where it's kind of therapeutic to reflect on it a little. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk this weird story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me not knowing that uh, my notes come from uh, a place that hopefully will not feel, um, I don't know, intrusive or anything, but thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate that was very personal. Yeah. And do do not worry about that in terms of <laughs> your criticisms yeah. or anything like that. Like we're, we're good to go. Yeah. As you alluded to, uh, listeners, I worked with Matt on another one of his stories earlier this same week. Uh, and so, yeah, we've got an idea for boundaries and stuff already that we'll probably push a little bit. Let's see how that goes. Though. So first up, like I said, overall, I enjoyed the story. The whole uh, weakening of the body, uh, body horror mm. aspect of it really grabbed me. I also just straight up like any story where a giant friggin' bird or dragon or something like plucks a guy off the ground. So <laughs> I, I just uh, simple pleasures. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I liked him being taken back to its lair. That was that was fun. And the third thing I'll mention is that I also really enjoyed the uh, repeated line of how you know this land belonged to him and the montage of history mm. that kind of went with it. Like I thought it had a good rhythm. Mm. I thought it was engaging, and it was definitely like better than I don't know the hooded one like steps aside to give a speech about the history of this land. We've we've all read, you know. Yeah, the villainous monologue info dumps. And I mean, I'm guilty too. Sometimes I pop those into stories, but I try to just like really pepper those out because it is a useful storytelling tool to have someone talk to a character and reveal information. Mm. But man, yeah, yeah you got to be you got to be careful. And the reason I did this. Yeah. Or Andwin could have been like, he remembered the scroll he read in the library that sent him here and then just like remembers the paragraph. He yeah, read. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. Well, I'm glad that's sort of sort of worked for you because um, that was something I, mm. that was an experimental bit for me, right? Like he's kind of okay. turning from one thing into the next. And then that thing is remembering who it was previously. And it's just like a shared memory, mm-hmm. a little 
maybe slightly Robert E. Howard with the uh, James Allison stories where he's got that sort of like, um, it's like a past meets future. And uh, one of the stories I'm thinking of is called Children of the Night, I think. Anyways, cool story. You should read it. Totally blood-soaked, but it goes to this guy kind of experiences this weird bloody history that he didn't actually experience, but it's like in his ancestry or I don't know. It's wild. Yeah, that might have been in there somewhere when I was doing that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Before we get into the main notes that I have for this, and let me say that I don't think there's like one big hole for us to plug, like one big terrible mistake where I just sat there being like, oh, Matt, and shaking my head. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I do think there are ways we can tighten this up and there are going to be kind of like a theme or two to my feedback. Sure. But yeah, like pretty tight story overall. However, before we get there, I'd like to quickly touch upon as much for the listeners yourself, because I liked some of the stuff that came out of our discussion of Knife mm. Fight, the story I looked at earlier this week, that I also think is somewhat relevant here, though uh, not as much because this is so much more polished a story. So yeah, I once again will advise the first thing I do with my edits is control F for that, Mm -hmm. then control F for but, (laughs) because if there's one thing I've learned, B-U-T, there's one thing I've learned, uh, (laughs) I gotta find that but, uh, there's one thing I've learned, it's that uh, any sentence with the word that in it, read it to yourself, Mm -hmm. then read it again without the word that, and 90% of the time it works fine. So it's just kind of dead air and it just kind of changes the rhythm in the sentence in a way that probably doesn't help. Similarly with but, and also like a lot of sentences, there were at least two I think I spotted in here that began with the word but. If you killed that word, it not only, you didn't miss it, mm-hmm. but it made the statement like kind of more declarative. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt a bit less like the second sentence was arguing with the previous mm-hmm. one when there wasn't really anything to argue. I also find if you have a lot of like this comma, but that so-and-so, which again, not so bad here, but I remember it was a lot of that knife fight. Mm-hmm. It does kind of create a herky-jerky rhythm as you're reading where you're like, well, this first thing I'm reading might not mean as much because it's going to get sort of half contradicted or ameliorated by the next thing. Right. So like, back and forth. Listeners can't see my head going back and forth. But anyway, I would just reiterate that advice. I think it's good stuff to do. And there was a little bit of that here. Yeah. The other thing is I double checked because I was like, am I crazy? No, no, you can't. You can, the English gods say, you can start sentences with the word and or but. Mm-hmm. However, if I had a Jeff Goldblum voice, I would be playing it here. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And I'd recommend against it if only because I wonder, you know, like I know for sure, actually, that there's like a non-zero amount of readers and editors out there who will think it is an error. Mm-hmm. And it's a small change that in most cases, again, doesn't, you don't lose anything by changing how that sentence starts. So just maybe a small thing that you might have had, you know, perhaps some of the people you sent this to, they, it might have been a small points against when they were like, oh, you can't start a sentence with that, like regardless of. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I Anyway, like small niggling things, but such as copy editing. Yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> and the those particular, I don't know, errors or whatever you want to call them, are things that tend to, because it's so familiar to me, right? When I'm reading it and writing it, that it's one of the, it's the fresh eyes concept. And I can't, once I, I think maybe when I'm reading it, back, I don't even really read it. It just sort of clicks in my brain, right? Yeah. No, this is why it's good to have uh, somebody else yeah, look exactly. at it for you. Exactly. Because exactly. you, you just kind of clip over it. I will add one more word to this, which is not so egregious, but I have now seeing it in a couple of your stories. I'm thinking, okay, this is another one worth bringing up. Mm-hmm. I would control F for somehow. Yeah. Because I find the way it crops up in your stories, like it's being used as an intensifier, mm-hmm. not so much a you know, allusion to mystery, like somehow a mm-hmm. thing happened. It's more just like somehow, and it seems, yeah, like, let me give you an example. Like on the bottom of page three of the story, where the beast is on top of him, mm-hmm. right? And you've got, I'll read a little bit for here. The beast dragged him through the mud out into the open, now looming over him and opened its jaws, revealing rows of gleaming yellow teeth, a long tendril of drool dripped down, which I love, landing on the flat of his sword. 
somehow this shook him from his stupor and he thrust mm-hmm. him all he had. Yeah. I read that and I was like, I don't know what the mystery is because it just like it's a stimuli that shook him out of like his reverie. Right. So I don't know that somehow really helps here. It could have almost been like on the flight of his sword, comma, shaking him uh, from his Yeah, stupor. exactly. Yeah, you don't need it because you've already showed sort of why it maybe shook him from the stupor. Yeah. So the cause and effect is very clear. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. It somehow it kind of throws me because I'm like, oh, am I missing something? Or is it just, it's just kind of a dead word. Anyway, like I say, none of these are what you call capital W war crimes, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of grit, right? That gets in the gears of the yeah. story. And as much as that you, as you can wash out, the better. So yeah, I remember I spotted a lot of somehows that kind of were similar to that one knife fight. I regret, I don't know if I brought that up. So add that to my notes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Do my work for me. But uh, yeah, that's probably the last coffee editing thing I'm going to bring up. But I thought that was a good one mm-hmm. to do so because I'm sure there are listeners out there who do the same thing. It's interesting that you found more of it in Knife Fight and that Knife Fight felt less polished, which I think is probably a testament to the time. That's about two years, three years old almost when I wrote that. And so you learn these little lessons along the way. And then especially the that piece. So that is something... That is something. That is, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but there's times too where it doesn't matter. Like I've even learned that same trick, right? Since I'd written uh, Knife Fight, where you just remove it and then it seems fine. But like I have, and maybe this is something other writers suffer from. There's this confidence piece where you're like, I'm pretty sure it's good, but I just can't tell. Like the, I can't have the fresh eyes. And that's why I feel like I couldn't be an editor ever because I'm too undecisive, indecisive. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why it's always good to find an editor like me. Uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> so or a buddy or whatever. But yeah, of course, like you just certain words become kind of invisible to you. And also what you mentioned about, I think confidence is definitely a part mm-hmm. of it. Like that was something I particularly with Knife Fight, I felt like, OK, this is like a someone who's having trouble with confidence in their statements. And so there's a lot of this, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, I don't want to be too definitive because I don't want to mislead the reader because I don't want to accidentally tell a story and correctly act, yeah. you know. And as I say, way less, like way, 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 dramatic reduction in the gift of Galah. So, hey, awesome yeah. progress. That's about it for the copy editing, really. Like I say, like, you know, this is a more polished story and it shows. So awesome. Now let's get on to the, the meat and potatoes mm. of what I want to talk sure. about. With you. Now I've got a bunch of stuff I'm going to kind of throw your way. And ultimately my philosophy is I'm not here to tell you how to tell your story. I'm here to try and give you tools and inspiration to help you execute what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to speak in definitive statements because it is fillery and time consuming to put but that's just my opinion at the end of every statement that comes out of your yeah, mouth. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like, <laughs> here's one thing I would say up front is, um, especially if you're like a, a really new writer, you can never turn your nose up at the editing process. Like, there are probably a handful of humans in the world who are perfect at writing and editing their own shit, but that is very rare. You have a lot of blind spots and you've got to be able to take the criticism and not even so much the criticism. Like if you think of it as advice, right? All of this stuff is going to make your work stronger. And you also need to consider that writing is a massive, what do I want to call it? Just in terms of the medium, there's so many lessons and dynamics and it's not stuff you can just learn overnight it takes time. And when you have someone that you trust who's doing the editing, there's it pays to look around, I guess is what I would say. Find someone that works with you, knows what it is you're doing, because you could hire an editor, work with them, and they don't really get what you're doing because there is that piece, right? It's not just someone telling a crappy writer that they're crappy because that happens too. <laughs> yeah, I've had that experience a long time ago in a screenwriting course where I basically was told 
to write like the teacher because he felt that he wrote, wrote well and therefore everyone should write like him. Yeah. Which is the exact opposite experience you ever want to have. And I've never forgotten it. Yeah. And yeah, like you say, like there's so many moving parts. Like you were, you know, I were talking on Discord last night mm-hmm. about the whole like grammar thing and being like, you know, sometimes a lot of this is just trying to keep it all in your head and you need yeah. someone else to remind you like what's a gerund yeah. or just like basic ass rules that like you're not dumb for forgetting because there's just so much to remember. Yeah. And you, and you even learn a thing, implement a thing and then forget the thing because you hadn't implemented it long enough for it to become, you know, part of your everyday writing. Muscle memory. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, oh, wait, yeah, that is the rule there. I think we looked at uh, the difference between um, less less and fewer, fewer, which seem very simple, right? If you can count it, it's fewer, but not if it's a singular. I think that's what we discovered. (laughs) Anyway, so boom. And now I feel like I'm never going to forget that now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. And honestly, I would say there are zero humans on earth who can perfectly write and edit their stuff, if only because years ago I worked at a comic book shop. And there was this one small new, then new uh, comic book company called Avatar Press. And they were just brand new and they had incredible names. They had Grant Morrison, they had Alan Moore, like all the big boys of comics that you would want to read. And I was like, how are they getting these guys? Like they're nobody. And then I discovered that their whole thing was that they did no story editing. They check for typos and otherwise just be like, go for it, Alan. Yeah. And Alan would be like, excellent tentacles and sex. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and also weird Egyptian gods and finger sculptures. and Yeah. And like, you know, more power to you, yeah. Alan, and others uh, that I read. But like, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It sort of told me I'm like, everybody needs an editor, even especially the people who are too big for us, sometimes others to want to say no mm-hmm. to them. You know, I think we've all read stuff like later works by really respected authors, authors we've really enjoyed. And you're like, boy, they needed someone to say no here yep. and there. Totally. But, all right. Like I said, there's no major like one glaring. Oh, he did this thing wrong and this is bad. <laughs> but I do have a couple of sort of themes to my uh, stuff here. And I'm going to go through it and see, you know, whatever grabs you, grabs you. If you want to ask questions, we can go deeper on something we can. And yeah, hopefully I'm just kind of reminding you of and or showing you some fun tools that can help bring this to a, a higher level. Yeah, sounds good. So my first suggestion is my I'm going to go out with the biggest, wackiest suggestion first. Why not? With Knife Fight, you were like, yeah, hey, I wrote this in first person. I'm not sure. Should I put it back to third person? And like, ultimately, I was like, yeah. I keep it first, you know? What if this story was first person? Mm. The reason I suggest that, mm-hmm. right, is because there's hardly any characters. So it's not like, you know, one guy has to observe a complex plot spanning kingdoms and courts. Also, it's so like in that guy's body and mind. Mm. A very right? close third POV. Yeah. Yeah. But like, what if yeah, yeah. first person and what if even present tense, mm. you know, really put the reader. I mean, I know not everybody's into that. <laughs> so I can see the eyebrow moving uh, and that's all good. But it could be first person, past tense, whatever. Like I said, your story. But even if it seems insane to you, like consider it because first person, present tense, have him have us be like he is the ride. Yeah, you're right. right? His, him, him and his body and mind is essentially the ride you're putting mm. us in for the duration of the story. Why not put us like right in to the ride instead of kind of like sitting on the, the ride's shoulder? Yeah. That's so a good, that's a, just that is something to consider. To consider. Yeah. And it also introduces uh, one of the two themes I, I think I've got going on here in my feedback, which is I think this story can only be improved by closing the distance between the reader and the subject matter uh, and the subject's experience. Mm-hmm. Because this is almost like, like it's a horror story. It's like, a, you know, which is all good, right? Like Sword and Sorcery frequently has horror elements. I believe it's one of the seven ones that Brian Murphy uh, mentions, <laughs> Lovecraftian slash horror elements uh, in his book, Flame and Crimson, which I've recommended too many times on this podcast. Too many. And also... Deathstalker 2 hits all of those marks, which you'll find out about, but we're uh, 
Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, good point. Yeah. Yes, uh, yes. And the uh, currently, as of this recording, the latest Rogues in the House episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Check that out. It's funny. You can hear Brian Murphy. Yeah. Uh, talk, if yeah. you can hear over <laughs> us chuckling, because there's a lot of that. Oh yeah, no. Good times over in the Rogues House. So yeah, the, to me, like that's the headline, the big newspaper headline is anything you can do here to close the distance. I think is a mm-hmm. good idea. One thing that's kind of related to that is sort of secondary is also I think there's ways to make things a little more personal with the hooded one, mm-hmm. right? Our antagonist. I really enjoyed him. I thought he was a cool villain. I liked his appearance very much. So with the sapphire eyes, uh, maybe think like a kind of a, a wickedly evil Ningobble from the, you know, from the Seven Eyes from uh, Baffin and Grey Master maybe. Was yeah, 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 yeah. So that was really cool. I liked that a lot. <laughs> I think you can make him more specific in two ways. One simple easy way I'll just rattle off is later when he becomes like the giant spider that is being wrestled with. I think about something, I hate to do this, but I'm going to bring it back to role playing games. There's something I really love from the philosophy of monster descriptions in Dungeon Crawl Classic where they suggest to you, look, even if you're straight up sending some, you know, 1d4 hit dice goblins at the guys, don't say some friggin' goblins come down the hallway unless like, you know, you don't want them to be intimidating. You know, maybe be like some weird plucky like troglodyte type guys with green skin and you know gnarly teeth like like sell them and don't ever call them by like a name yeah i feel that you know try and make it a unique beast and so here like before you said you know he's a giant spider i was like oh wicked it's like a weird wizardy head giant spider thing and like what i was imagining i liked it kind of more yeah than when you were like spider and i was like okay spider yeah (laughs) so that's just like a small note but it's kind of what i mean about like adding specificity that will draw the reader in i think too in the tradition of like sword and sorcery with the kind of cosmic horror elements you know lovecraft you know he's kind of like i can't describe it it's indescribable but there there really is something to that right (laughs) you wouldn't believe this yeah you wouldn't believe this thing (laughs) you'll go insane if you even think about it but it's true though that sometimes saying less being less specific about it lets the reader do more lifting. I think Stephen King remarks a bit about that in On Writing. I really like that book. He kind of says, you know, paraphrasing big time here, it's like about leaving just enough description that then activates the reader's imagination. And this again is another one of those brilliant things that you're only really going to find with an editor because you're not going to be able to, personally, I can't self-diagnose that because I already have an image in my head of what this thing is. I'm trying to communicate it to you. So we're already off to a bad start with me being like, here's the thing. This is exactly what it looks like. But you're right. I should do less of it and let you determine a little more. Yeah. And like, I really enjoyed the description you had up to that point in the paragraph. Like to me, it was it was almost like one of your somehows in the sense that it was kind of this like just making sure, you know, mm-hmm. like an intensifier at the end saying spider. I'm like, you know, you had the webs. I was already thinking spider. Then you had this big, crazy wizard head with tendril like things that are kind of part of his hood. And then the eyes are bigger and shining down the sapphires. Yeah. Like you had me, you had me. Yeah. So yeah, it's just again that kind of thing of like get yeah, trimming out a little bit, and also you kind of do that right with Galah. Like this is something like you already have done elsewhere in the story when the gift is taken and Anduin is a big boy. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but it felt to me like a big scarred giant ape. Like I King Kong versus Godzilla was popping in my oh, head. Yeah. At, you know, at one point there. That's that's what I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no doubt. Like, because like, I've seen you praising that film, so I was like, I bet he was thinking about yeah. it. Which I mean, all good, right? Because like, I understood what you were going for, and at no point do I, unless I missed it, did you say giant ape? No, I don't think I did. You're right. Yeah. So yeah, like that's what I mean. Like, this is just one of those things. Like we're talking about reminding someone of something that they already know and have already done in this story. I would say take it further and let me just have like a big weird wizard head spidery thing uh, in my mind. And adjacent to that, this is a little bit of my personal taste. So I'll caveat on that, right? This is your story as always. I would 
would consider a different name for the hooded one. Okay. And I would also go through any of your names in the story that are basically like proper nouns. Like, you know, when you're reading fantasy stories and somebody's like, I fought against the Empire, capital E, yeah, Empire. Yeah. And like, of course, like people have been incredibly successful with stuff like that. I hear there's this thing called the Federation in Star Trek. <laughs> Although I guess that is shorthand for a longer, more specific name. But I find that kind of thing, like it is a very much a staple of the genre, right? Like, absolutely. There are other sword and sorcery stories with stuff like, you know, the hooded mm-hmm. one, you know, the empire of such and such or whatever. Like, I've got a story I'm working on myself where I know I'm going to change it later. But for now, I just put the empire of reason is the big bad empire or whatever. And like, it sounds cool and it's fun while I'm writing it. And it's kind of a shorthand. It's useful to have t- names like the hooded one or the empire, empire of reason mm-hmm. because we know that that signifies to the reader like, okay, bad guy, this is what's going yeah. on here. Bad guy of a certain size and shape. So great. But the problem with it, in my opinion, is that when you use a kind of shorthand, what you're doing is you're creating a little bit of distance. Remember my sort of theme here of kind of bring the reader deeper mm-hmm. into your, your body horror kind of story. It creates a little bit of distance because you're kind of reminding them that they're reading a story because you're tapping into that story consumer shorthand in their head by saying the hooded one, the empire of reason, whatever. So I would consider like, not that you need to call him like Barry, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the hooded one is like an abstract, fearful, terrifying thing. Ain't bad, but I think the hooded one as somebody with like a specific name who has a specific axe to grind. Yeah. Right? Like, I get that he hates Anduin and loves tormenting him. And he's like, I own you. I own your ass. Yeah. Uh, not actual line of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, it, this sort of like, I guess I'm daisy chaining some of my notes here around the hooded one. Um, where I feel like a specific name might be kind of mm-hmm. neat, or maybe a name and a title, even if, even if it's like so-and-so the hooded mm-hmm. one, you know? Uh, it just feels more like a guy and less like an abstract thing. And honestly, to the point where I'm going to ask you straight up something I kind of had trouble figuring out in the story. Is the hooded one a separate entity, or is he like a psychic like problem in Anduin's head? Yes, he is the latter. But at the same time, well, in some ways I don't want to answer that because it's one of those creator bits where I'm like, I haven't completely decided the exact situation, but he he remarks later in the story that I was never really there anyways, right? And that you created me, right? And so it kind of, uh, I'm defining magic in my overall setting, like of my stories sort of drip feed um, as I go. Oh, sorry. Mm. (laughs) Something fell upstairs. And so for him, I also kind of have it in my mind too, that perhaps there's more to the story in that he manifested physically, but from the mind, right? So sorcery almost made it happen for real so that it is a actual physical threat. But then by the same token, is it? I don't, right? (laughs) Well, yeah. Okay. So for now, at least, well, you know, I won't hold you to this. And if it gets published elsewhere and I'm like, hey, he changed it. Uh, But, you know, sounds to me, okay, so it comes from him. So I I was considering that and I was thinking whether the hooded one was an external, like, I don't know, Skeletor type guy tormenting him or whether it's an internal thing as we're describing Mm. here. Kind of (laughs) like, I just watched Encanto the other night and like similarly, like trauma produces, magic produces an effect, but uh, slightly less songs in the story um fewer (laughs) so i think it's important then to maybe establish and i don't it doesn't need to be a big backstory it literally could be a sentence or two you know just allude to something but i didn't really understand why the hooded one hated him and wanted to torment him i got that he was doing it and again maybe i missed something Mm -hmm. but i I don't know i read through this three times in preparation and i could never find a motive Mm -hmm. 
And I think that would make him more engaging. Yeah. And if it's Anduin, if it's if it's Anduin tormenting himself, well, okay, well, what happened with Anduin that made him hate himself? Yeah, there are some weird unanswered questions in that way. And I think that is something, one of the bigger things I probably need to think about with what I want to do with this. At the time, again, back to my sort of genesis of the story was that the anxiety that I was experiencing was so new for me. It was these, it was like my body and my mind were against me. And I had no mastery over them. And I had gone most of my life feeling really strong in those regards. So I think that's what I'm going for is that he really is a manifestation of Anduin's dying confidence and his fear that he's losing control of all of his faculties. But you're right. I think the reader probably needs something more to latch onto other than, oh, the guy who's writing this had a really bad couple of months when he was uh, upset about things and his anxiety. Wow. If you'll forgive me, like I had the screenwriter talk, it kind of needs an inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Like what broke his confidence? Yeah. What what nudged him along? And to save you from the risk, I think, perhaps of expanding the world of this thing, because I don't think it really needs to be expanded much. Although funny enough, I have a suggestion along those lines coming down the pipe. His family is who he wants to get back to. Yeah. Maybe it was something to do with his family. You know, I mean, this is kind of hokey. I don't expect you to use it, but just riffing off the cuff. You know, this family he loves so much that he wants to get back to. You could, you know, in some stories, I could imagine there being uh, versions of the story, there being a reveal near the end that what started to break his confidence was he lost his temper in his wife after coming back from fighting a mm-hmm. war or something. Mm-hmm. You know, the classic vet who, like, what he was fighting for, he loses because of how the fight changed him. Mm-hmm. You know, again, that's just off the cuff. There's a hundred other ways it could be Yeah, explained. and I, th- I think even in my mind, I had not precisely that, but that whatever was happening with him, like the hooded one or the anxiety that got underneath his skin affected how he was dealing with his family and how he was, you know, absent and whatever else. And so in my mind, it was that things got so bad, he had to leave and he just, right? But yes, the reader doesn't know that. And the reader, I think, needs a little something more that exists in my head. I got to share more of it, you know? Yeah, which I mean, this is a little scary, right? Because this comes from such a personal place Mm -hmm. for you. But there you go. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to dig deep, dig deep. So that's one end of it there. And the other end of it in terms of what I think a reader could use, I liked the ending. But I would like you to consider two things related to how this story ends. One of them is, and again, like I, especially now that I know where the story was coming from, I totally get it. Like you were processing emotion in your writing, mm-hmm. which it works great for the writer, but sometimes it's not enough for the reader. And what I think the reader could use potentially to give this story more kick is like a statement. Like you have very strong themes here to do with anxiety and the body and so forth, as we've been discussing. What I couldn't find was like a thematic statement. I don't know what the story is perhaps arguing. And it can be a dark story and still have to kind of say something. And it can be saying something dark or it can even kind of slip in something light near the end through the family. But it's something that is it's too late. Brandwin. It's it, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to be a happy affirming it's ending bleak. of like, and that's how you beat problems. Right. Like it is yeah. <laughs> it is bleak, almost nihilistic. And part of why I chose this story, because I had a couple on file that are weaker and need work, but I chose this one, I think, because in my mind, for this experiment we're doing here, it really does show that a writer can become too emotional on things to destroy the mechanics of a thing. Not destroy, that's probably a little intense, but like your emotions can Maybe omit. Yeah, or... exactly. You're, you're just, you can't, the more emotional you are about a piece and the more personal it is, I mean, for me, I think the more of that kind of, those sort of lapses can slip in there. 
So I think that is a good point. I don't necessarily want it to be that bleak. Like at the time, it really was the darkest patch. And I have a few stories from the last couple of years that sort of speak to it. And then stuff I wrote after was very much like a nice bomb of fun sort of adventure tales. So I don't really want it to have a bleak ending so much. I kind of want, I mean, maybe it's a darker tale and it's it's going to stay that way. But I feel like there needs to be some kind of a theme. So you're not just like, well, what the hell? Everything sucks and people die. This is Cormac McCarthy. Like, what are we doing here? Uh, <laughs> hey, Cormac McCarthy does all right, yeah, but I know what no. you mean. Yeah. Yeah, let me be clear. Well, I love Cormac kinda... McCarthy and uh, I think his... <laughs> It's okay to not like yeah. him, Matt. I mean, I can see your T-shirt that says "I hate Cormac McCarthy." Yeah. Don't Blood say Meridian otherwise. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I only read it three times to hate it. Yeah, no. His wife is ugly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very long oh, shirt. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whether or not you have like a definitive thematic statement, may I riff something for you? Because yeah. yeah, I seem to be having good luck here with Daisy chaining my feedback here. So it all feels like I'm much brighter than I am. Mm-hmm. So okay, so we're looking at maybe a thematic statement. Something the story is is telling the reader. What's it going to tell the reader? Well, just brainstorming here and tying it into something I was going to suggest to you. There was one writing exercise I thought you might want to think about even if what you wrote didn't actually get up get end up getting included like it could still enrich what you have thus far in the chronology mm-hmm. what if you wrote a scene that happens after the end of it current it could be uh, i guess we'll call him gala anduin gala wandering off you know what now yeah. <laughs> you know now that i've been like goodbye family or it could be switching perspectives for the last paragraph and the little boy you know pardon me little boy or girl uh, i don't even remember shoot <laughs> i think it's a girl i think it's a girl it's a, I, th- I think so yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a girl Jesus yeah. Christ. The child could be like catching a glimpse of some big weird buggity boo, you know, going off into the shadows. Oh, with not knowing it's dad. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I would say the second part of that would be try to think about what the scene immediately following could be. And then think about what a scene 10 years later could mm-hmm. be. And again, you know, you could have the sort of ending of like, well, he's got to go off and dream and hope in the mountain. Instead of saying that he's going to do that, you could, you know, he'd follow the river, etc. It could just be like, Boop. and then we see him, you know, in the mountain waiting for some other beast to snack on. Or, and this could get us to a thematic statement, perhaps, uh, this is my riffing here. Uh, what if, you know, we then try writing a scene or we, you try writing a scene with the daughter grown up and she goes off because she's heard about the this thing called the gift of Galah, and she wants to try and find out what happened to her dad, but she'll need strength to survive. And maybe she can find mm-hmm. it on this mountain. Wah, 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 you know, and it's not only kind of a cute button, I suppose he said, because of the sound effect he made with his mouth for no good reason, but uh, also it could give you a note of optimism that you maybe, it sounds like you kind of want to uh, snag into the end here, where potentially, like we're not saying it all works out, but because mm-hmm. it could also read as the kid is doomed to repeat what happened to the father. Mm-hmm. But it could also be read as the kid is going to save the father, which is a classic theme, you know, kind of event. Yeah. You know, maybe that could or be even, for here. Yeah. And I like the idea perhaps of making that indecisive. But when you were talking about that, an image just kind of popped in my head of this girl, you know, maybe late teens shows up at the base of this mountain, right? With a sword. And she's, I don't know. I, I would have to go back in and get, get sort of into the voice of that story. But even something, a small vignette, not unlike the weird little history ones that I peppered in there. To kind of have, she showed up at the mountain, you know, maybe her mother died and then she goes and I don't know, add a little more doom and gloom there. (laughs) Gotta kill those parents. Yeah. Or even like, (laughs) even (laughs) maybe she finds, it's funny you said earlier, he, you alluded to this uh, jokingly, like maybe he was reading from this scroll, but what if she found uh, something her dad had written before he left? Right. And then you get, you could even put in there a little more of the reason, showing a little more of what happened and why he left. And then it gives her a breadcrumb to kind of follow. I don't know. That might work. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I would say if you do that, make it uh, as sparse as possible. Like something he carved into the yeah. table at home, you know, just before he left. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah. Word, and then it's taken to these years yeah. to like investigate and expand that word into enough knowledge to know what the hell it means and where to go. Yeah, not putting in like a dear daughter. <laughs> if you're reading yeah. this, you must know. <laughs> Nothing yeah, like or that, like no. one day my mother sat me down and told me I'd get hair where there was no hair before. Also, dad vanished. <laughs> uh, and there's something called yeah. the gift of Galah. Anyway, puberty's a bitch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that's the truth. Maybe this is just a weird metaphor allegory for puberty. <laughs> he turns <laughs> into the ape man. <laughs> everything is everything okay. is puberty. That's one thing I've learned in life. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So okay. So uh, I, oh, I want I want to slip this in before because I know I'm okay. going to forget about it. This is uh, <laughs> it, the working title for this was Altered Beast, like oh. the Sega Genesis game. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, I, <laughs> I kind of, I always had a, I wanted to get a story about like a, a beast man sort of. And so once, you know, circumstances hit and I started creating this story, I was like, well, let's, let's make him, that's the way he thinks he can conquer it is to get this ancient bestial strength. But yeah, the, the file was called originally altered beast, which I thought is a funny thing to know. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, maybe, uh, yeah. The gift of Sega. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I like I have a bunch of little sort of track changes style notes, just little things I noticed as I was going through the story. But these are my main edits, and mm -hmm. I do have a couple of other little writing exercises that, like maybe again, like just as thought exercises. You don't even have to like say do them, but just seeing the questions that they put to you might give you ideas, you know. And I'll email those all mm -hmm. to you afterward. I don't think they're definitive enough to bother discussing here. So I would ask you, I guess maybe one or two closing questions, if I may. One of them is when you got the rejection or rejections for this story, were they the dreaded form rejections or did you get like any specific, uh, you know, criticisms from people you submitted to? Yeah, no, I think it was a form rejection letter. One of those. Yeah, but send us more stuff later or, you know, that kind of thing. Which is fair. I mean, if I was reading a slush pile, I would not, <laughs> I would not oh, want to yeah. give comments on everything. And I mean, I really just did kind of throw this one out because there was a looming date. I think a lot of writers probably are guilty of this. There was a, a looming due date. You had something on file. It sounded like a reasonable thing. So you just took a shot, which is kind of mean in that in, on some level, I feel like I probably was wasting somebody's time. But then again, maybe it wasn't, right? Maybe it was close to where it needed to be. Who knew? Yeah. Like, I mean, with form rejections, it's always like, and you know this, but uh, yeah, like on the one hand, it's nice that there's no specific criticism. Like I've gotten some pretty raunchy stuff on one or two stories. Yeah. <laughs> but also you don't get any positive feedback that can help guide you onto the next draft. It's just a blank, like mm -hmm. eh, didn't work at Red X sound effect, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. Then I hope that at the very least when you next submit it, even if it's not accepted, it sort of ranks up to getting some specific feedback and maybe they can guide you a little bit further. But I hope that the next draft gets in the door, man. Like, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for you. Yeah. And I mean, this might be something I don't bother submitting anywhere else. Like, based on your comments and our discussions, I'm definitely going to return to it, tidy it up. And if there's something that I think uh, fits, that's good. But I've got this sort of long-term plan which ends up still being long term because as a writer, I'm not I'm not working on a novel yet, right? I'm not. That's not my goal just yet. I do a lot of gigs with RPGs, and you know, I'm busy with my day job. Mm -hmm. But the plan is to eventually take all of my best stuff and pop it into an anthology and make no money, but just have it have a book in my name, right? Yeah. 
And so this is the sort of thing that might go in there. And maybe there's a little, maybe I do forwards for the stories and kind of contextualize them a little. Well, I got to say, I mean, I love that. I, I always love that in stories. You know, something I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, The Red Man and Others by Ronco Van Stratton and Angeline B. Adams. Yeah, I need but to pick that up. I really do. Totally worth it. I actually bought two copies, uh, sorry, three copies, wow. but two extra for like buddies, which I hardly ever do because I was like, they got to read this book. Yeah, and nice. part of what I really made me do that was it's got a lot of great back matter of them speaking about where the stories came from. Yeah. I, and that's a, as a reader, I dig that too. And part of me is like, I can see somebody rolling their eyes, right? Like, ah, oh, no one cares about you. Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. But I find that stuff interesting for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's me. Like, it's optional. Like, if somebody doesn't like it, they can skip the damn page. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You don't need to read it. But if you're buying a book from someone, even if it's just your friend, you're supporting them, or, you know, it's a podcast host and you're humoring them by buying their book or uh, whatever. I think that's interesting stuff. I, I do. I do like that. Like the history behind things is it's interesting. And I think a lot of fantasy yeah. readers are a little more prone to that, right? Like, to want to know I, stuff. Yeah, whether I could see whether that. they love uh, big loads of exposition in the story and they want some mm -hmm. more outside of it. Or even if they're like, you know, hardcore sword and sorcery dorks, like, us who are like ah who needs backstory but you know as tends to be the discussion on, on the whetstone and yet still here we are being like who needs anything more than the most minimal backstory anyway i just finished reading the entirety of howard's correspondence with lovecraft and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. also they yeah. got his laundry list in this one you know yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's right. So uh, yeah, I think I think certainly in this genre, there's a lot of rope, a lot of room. Maybe don't hang yourself. Uh, a lot of room <laughs> for uh, you know discussion of like the influence behind tales. And I mean, here we are, both of us liking that stuff. So you know, we can't be the only ones, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I guess the last thing I'll ask you before we tie a bow on this is, do you have or did you have any specific concerns about this story beyond? I get the impression maybe you feeling a little like, oh, have I shown too much of myself? In which I would say, no, don't worry about it. And I also don't think mm. it's too dark. I, I would say it's not with the self-deprecating, like, ah, oh, this is a dark story. Frankly, it was not as dark as I expected based on the way you sold it to me. Okay. Uh, I was waiting for some real grisly stuff, uh, and uh, I'm glad I didn't find it because like, I like the story as it is. But mm -hmm. yeah, like don't self-deprecate, no need. But uh, yeah, other than maybe seemingly worrying it, it's a little too dark. Uh, did you have any other concerns or anything you'd like to discuss with me? Huh, that's a good question. Back to the... The idea of um, like, there's something I really did like about this was it did feel dark and it felt like helpless. Like I, it, that's really what it was, is this kind of just spawned from a feeling of helplessness that I was not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I wanted to do when the action pieces came in, I wanted them to be sort of satisfying and violent. And I'm wondering if those sort of worked for you, like where he mashes that beast into a paste with his like <laughs> anger. Like for me, that was the satisfying part that kind of kept me going through writing it and feeling as ironic as it may sound, it feels less dark because he had those, he vented that anger and frustration. Yeah, there was catharsis to be found. It wasn't just a, an endless dribble of like, and it got worse and then it got a bit worse. Last page. Yeah. The worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing I'm curious about is where I do those weird time lapses where he's having these sort of memories of from Gala, I guess, that all made sense to you? Like you were able to kind of piece that oh, together? It was as simple to follow as one, two, three. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and good. I like the fact that it kind of leapt around a bit because A, it meant that it wasn't an exhaustive backstory. I don't think that was necessary. No. But there was like enough there to be evocative. You know, it's good images. And the fact that we're kind of like, doodly, 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 you know, like waving through the history there without the sound effect. It also felt like <laughs> the mindset of the guy, right? Like, I mean, it's not like he actually, as you describe it, it's not like he actually had some sort of time dilation thing where he lived hundreds of years. It's that he just got glimpses as he was kind of getting Gala downloaded, you know, into him. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I really like that. Uh, no, that okay. worked perfectly, you know, a-okay there. As far as the fight scenes, you did remind me of actually one little thing. Again, this is just kind of like tweaking a dial, not a not mm -hmm. an issue with a capital mm -hmm. I. 
But I think given the nature of the story and what your goals are with it, I would go back over the fights and see like, you know, just in the other interview I was recording today, I made the same damn comment. So sorry, anybody who's listened to those two episodes back to back, but it's relevant here too. Um, I think about how and why people write badly written fight scenes and how that kind of ties into how people do the same thing with sex scenes in the sense <laughs> that with both, we don't actually have the visuals. Right. And yeah. so sometimes the temptation is to be like, and then that went there and that went there. And the guy went, Oh, was that a fight scene or a sex scene? Who knows? And, <laughs> and that's all well and good. And sometimes it can be exciting to be like, and Conan's battle axe cut the guy's head in half. But are you saying like, be less procedural about it? Well, be a little less procedural, certainly for this story, because for this story, it feels like you're not here to thrill me with combat. You're here, here to get me into this guy's head and feel what he's feeling. And so I think at like key points in the fights where like decisions are being made or results are coming out then by all means, give us, you know, he did this with his axe. Otherwise, I really think you should see what you can do and just play around with it. Maybe it's already about where it should be, but if possible, uh, mm -hmm. make it more about his uh, emotions. The despair he feels in the fight was like the beast that plucks him off and t takes him away. I mean, talk about yeah. having your agency literally taken from you or the bloody great yeah. thing just picks you up like a bug it's going to eat later. Stuff like that. Like, don't be afraid to lean a little more into description of uh, what's going on between his ears as much as what's going on, I mean, you know, him and the beast or yeah. whatever he's fighting. Yeah, I feel that. And I think maybe that again speaks to my bias of when I'm writing it, because I'm saying to you, it felt good for me to just cut through and have him be blood and thunder for a minute, right? Yeah, yeah. But you could like when he's pulping the thing when he's galah then just lean into that description like describe how mm. you felt in a way of like oh the you know it felt good like after all this weakness to do this weakness mm. why do i remember weakness i'm galah whatever man punch 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 yeah. you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> donkey kong punches is what that looked yeah. like <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, that's, that again is, this is me selling your brand here. I get not brand, but your services is that I, that's the sort of thing that's really tough to pick out as the writer. You're going to have certain blind spots about it. For me, it felt good for me to write it satisfying, like I said, blood and thunder combat, though it doesn't necessarily serve the rest of the story. So yeah. And absolutely. And to take the heat off of you for a second, you know, I'm almost done reading through a chapter at a time as bonus episodes for the podcast on Patreon. There's a Patreon, folks. Ooh. My first novel, Junkyard Leopard, which features a lot of like basically sort of grindhouse violence in various chapters. And mm -hmm. there are points and it's always against like really corrupt, like rich people who suck. And so, you know, me writing this book, I was maybe mad about corrupt rich people who suck. And so it was kind of <laughs> cathartic for me to be like, and then she puts the hammer through his clavicle. It's pretty bad. He goes, ow. Uh, he says, ow. <laughs> and, and I know like one of the big things I did with my edits later and probably could have done more but hey it was my first novel was to mm. take it a bit out of the rote repetition of that stuff because it was me the writer getting off essentially but not necessarily putting something that would get the same feelings into the head of the reader yeah exactly so and it can also lead to repetition i definitely like i remember one reader was like i like the story but i get it they're rich and they're jerks <laughs> i was like i just want to make sure you didn't miss that yeah, I yeah. so you, you, you caught that did you yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's, maybe it's just me being like, they're jerks, they're jerks, just typing it over and over. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's always, always good to get uh, another person to look at it, whether it's me who hasn't actually mentioned it in the recordings yet. But yes, dear listener, I am available for story consultations like these. I enjoy doing them and you can give me money and I will give you help. Uh, <laughs> I hope it doesn't feel crass for me to say that, but yeah. Well, here's something I want to say that uh, aspiring writers, new writers may not always think about is that mm. if you're going through the rigor of writing your own story, getting it polished, you think it's great, you're finally happy with it, you put it away for a week and looked at it again, and you're like, yeah, it's still good. And then you submit it. I would suggest if you got a little extra cash, hire an editor before you submit. Like honestly, 
I know it's, if you're submitting short fiction, you're not in it to make money, man. It's not going to happen unless you're a very established writer. And then like you say, you can be one of those who dodges content edits and you'll get paychecks and that'll be fine. That's rare. So spend some extra, like honestly, the rates that we worked out are completely reasonable. I have my day job. This writing thing is a hobby. So it is worth it for me to pay someone like you to get the story in better shape before you submit it. Because then even if they don't like the story overall, or they don't want the story overall to whomever you're submitting it, they will at least see fewer of those blemishes and it'll stick in their head as like a tighter draft. And that might be memorable for them too. So I would say, go ahead and invest in your story before you even submit. Pay someone to edit it if you can. It's worth it. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Matt, not only because you know, it pushes my services, but also because mm. like, I would say that too, but I would sound incredibly biased right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know. And and that's something that I wouldn't have considered when I first started out, right? Like you, maybe it's the cliche, but I'm terribly unconfident about the things that I write. Like I know that there's something there and I know I've had enough successes where it's like, obviously I'm doing things right, but you don't at first want to give it to an editor. You're afraid because they're going to poke a lot of holes in there, but pretty much anybody is going to get a lot of holes poked in their work. It's just, that's the way it goes and that's how you learn. So yeah, it's worth it. Do it. Yeah. And also I, I remember uh, for a while, I just, I don't know, just some blind spot I had. I, I, I didn't, it never occurred to me to hire an editor for a short story, for a novel, yeah. for a screenplay. Sure. But mm -hmm. then, you know, someone I was talking to was like, yeah, I edit short stories. Uh, you know, and I was like, you do what now? Uh, and <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you bother editing something so short. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, yeah, why not? It's easy. It takes way less time. I was like, God, of course. <laughs> so yeah, I turned yeah. around right there on the spot and hire them. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're the person too, who, if you're cutting your teeth, writing short fiction, which uh, that's what I've been doing, it's not as expensive, right? <laughs> if yeah. you're doing this piecemeal and you've been working your ass off on something, throw a little extra change at it and yeah, get someone to read it and it's it's not that expensive. And it's not even that time consuming to go through the edits and the comments and you will have a tighter story at the end of it. There's no question. Well, yeah, exactly. As with the time and energy quotient of short stories, it is a smaller investment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And a good way to get yourself started. And also if you're not really experienced working with editors in general, because that is something that is good to learn. Certainly in screenwriting, I had to really learn a healthy respect and relationship with feedback uh, early on because people yeah. don't want to work with you <laughs> if yeah. you uh, if you you know throw a tantrum or whatever about it but also beyond the obvious emotional quotient it's this thing of getting better at learning how to take the advice in and apply it and get bring as much value out of it as possible you know when i got feedback from that editor who is the one i'm thinking of is uh, if you go back to the first episode of the podcast where i talk about the short story that birthed this novel project i'm talking about mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned, oh, here's the editor and I give the feedback they gave me. And you'll notice it's really thorough, partly because the editor was a great editor and really gave me lots of stuff to work with, but also mm -hmm. because I kept those notes. I have kept all of the notes I've ever gotten on my stuff uh, and date order in a file folder that I can then go back through and remind myself of lessons that I maybe have forgotten temporarily or remind myself that like, oh, yeah, I am, I am getting better. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm not just, you know, pushing a boulder up the hill that keeps falling back down over my feet. <laughs> You know, yeah, I brought up a few times, you know, I've even had things published now. And then I look back at them and I cringe. I'm like, geez, that, oh, oh. And people will buy like, yeah, I can't wait to check your story. I'm like, oh, don't, don't, <laughs> don't judge me. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's all, it's all good for the learning experience and you got to check your ego. And the other thing too is with short stories, if you're paying editors to do those, you can kind of shop around a little, right? You can have 
have one do one, you can have one do another, and then you can kind of see who works best with you because you can be a great editor, but it might not be a good match with the writer. Yeah, they might have different priorities. They might be like that screenwriting teacher I always remember who was like, write like me because I write good. And, yes. you know, and then you're like, okay, not, the, not you. Yeah, it's a good way yeah. to just sort of dip your toe in the water before committing potentially to say a novel. You know. Yeah, and, and some editors are going to pull out better stuff from your work or they're going to have better eyes for your work than others. It's like I've every editor that I've worked with has been good. It's just who's going to be best, right? And yeah. and for you personally, it's that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's starting to make it sound almost like dating, but yeah, it's absolutely a personal connection <laughs> kind of thing. And like so much like networking, like finding a job, like there's so much in life. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I would, I, I'm not, you know, you're going to think I'm, <laughs> I had a great experience with the edits you sent back. This has been great too. So I would recommend your services. And he did not tell me to do that when we started recording. Don't worry. I have no power over Matt. He's in a whole nother province, which uh, for uh, international listeners is like a state, but bigger and more loosely governed. Uh, yeah. And it <laughs> sounds Canadian. like something you'd say more with an English accent, a province. <laughs> well, is that true? Do I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, Matt, this has been awesome. I really enjoyed my side of it, and I'm glad to hear you enjoyed your side too. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you back on the show someday to, to discuss something. I'm thinking about getting a panel discussion for something actually down the cool. line. Uh, you might enjoy, but we'll talk about that off mic. Yeah, man. So yeah, thanks so much for being here. And hey, everybody, if you enjoyed here listening to Matt, if you don't already know who he is, go check out Rogues in the House, where he is one of uh, three marvelous hosts who discuss sword and sorcery and related topics. All right. Bye, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> See you. And thank you. Seriously. I was like, what's the cue here? Uh, yeah, but yes. Off? No, no, no. Thank you very much. I I'll take the last word. I really appreciate all of, I mean, reading the story three times, going through it. I'm not even, this is a pro bono gig. I paid him for knife fight, but this one, uh, I was like, he was offering this service. You're damn right. I took it. So thank you. Well, I'm going to steal the last word and say that what you gave me uh, was an advertisement for my services. So in a way I got paid. Uh, <laughs> ah, yes. Thank you very much. All right. All right my God, let's care. get out of here. Bye. Bye. I'm pressing the stop button. Bye. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me and Matt, and I'll see you next time.